When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Critical Care PRN is dedicated to fostering the role of critical care pharmacists as essential members of the multidisciplinary patient care team. The Critical Care PRN's goal is to optimize drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, including how to become a member, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that website is critprn.accp.com. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based care in clinical practice. So check out READ for easy access to research personalized for you. Calculate for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. Try them today at qxmd.com apps. Again, that is qxmd.com A-P-P-S. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast, a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network and a partner of the ACCP Critical Care PRN. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. Wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. Now, this is the February 2023 Literature Review Series, where we're discussing featured articles, a six-pack of studies that stood out above the rest. Then focusing on articles in the cardiac and neuro subspecialties, followed as always by a section highlighting the amazing work by, done by pharmacists across the globe, the front of the fridge. Some great episodes published in February 2023. So let's start talking about them. And joining me for the February 2023 literature review series is Rhea Saltow. Now, she is the PGY2 critical care resident at Our Lady of the Lake Regional Medical Center in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and will be returning home following the completion of her residency to be a critical care clinical specialist at HCA Houston Clear Lake Hospital. That's amazing. Always like congratulating post-residency jobs. Uh, Rhea's on Twitter at Rhea Saltau. So her last name, S-O-L-T-A-U. Uh, Rhea, welcome. Uh, appreciate you joining me for the February February Literature Review Series. And uh, congrats is in order, clearly. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, now, it's so exciting that you, you got a position, you're going home. So let us know, what are you most excited about um, returning back to Houston? Uh, it's a great question. I think really it's, it's the community. Um, so most of the family and friends is there and then just absolutely love all of the food, um, all of the activities, everything is in Houston that you could ever think of. So really, really excited to go back and like enjoy it now that I'll be out of residency. 
Yeah, I know you you made it without Texas barbecue and the Houston rodeo for a year. Are you like are you okay? Do we need to check in on you, Rhea? Like how are you doing? So I'm not gonna lie, um, my husband still goes back to Texas for work and he will stop by ATB to get um appropriate Texas meats. Um, just so we can get through the year. <laughs> so it's been a little excessive. So excited not to have to travel four hours to get appropriate barbecue meat. Yeah, but you got to do it. Girls got to do what a girl's got to do, right? To make sure that she's getting in that home home uh, cooking. So that's awesome. Yeah, that's um, there's something different in Texas. I have friends who are there. So that's uh, that's really great. Um, now, the the reason that uh, everyone is joining us today um, is, of course, the literature review series. So we have six featured articles today. So that means it is a six pack of studies, and we're going to switch things up just a little bit. And I'm actually going to be the one starting off today. Um, so Rhea, hang tight. Yeah, everyone's going to you're going to get tons of awesome um, articles and discussion with her. But the featured article I want to talk about first. Um, is an article that is um, in Clinical Infectious Diseases, and it's entitled Empiric versus Preemptive Antifungal Strategies in High-Risk Neutropenic Patients on Fluconazole Prophylaxis. So right now, current guideline recommended use of empiric antifungals in neutropenic patients are to add when patients present with a neutropenic fever that hasn't been reduced after three to seven days of broad-spectrum antimicrobials. But I think we've all been there when it's, you know, 48, 72, 96 hours, and they're still febrile and trying to make the argument to continue holding off um, on empiric antifungals can be sometimes challenging, right? And so that's where this randomized trial from the European Organization for the Research and Treatment of Cancer comes in, right? So this is an open-label phase three randomized parallel multicenter trial that compares the efficacy and safety of a fever-driven antifungal approach to a diagnostic-driven approach in European countries. And they included patients who had acute myeloid leukemia, or AML, or myelodysplastic syndrome. Um, and they are stem cell transplant recipients, right? So so both of those two things had to happen. And then um, in a kind of candon, caspofungin in this study um, specifically was administered if, and there are two different arms, right? So we have one arm, the empiric arm, or arm A, which was the fever-driven arm. And that's kind of what, um, how we use it now based on the guidelines, right? An unexplained fever after four days of broad-spectrum antibiotics or a new fever two days after you had that initial fever resolution. Um, so that's kind of the empiric arm. And then the preemptive arm or diagnostically driven is arm B. And that group used the combination of a positive galactomannan assay, right? They monitor it twice weekly, um, a new pulmonary infiltrate on chest X-ray CT or a aspergillus respiratory culture. Right? And those patients would get started empirically on the echinocandins. And they were looking at a 42-day mortality, and they ended up including um, almost 550 patients, 549 to be specific. Um, and there was no difference in the overall survival. Now, um, the, the percentage is 93 versus almost 97%. It was just weird to see it this way because I'm used to seeing mortality, right? So you see 93 and it's like, ooh. Um, but it is, no, right, the, the difference to survival. So uh, there was no difference. Um, and there were similar rates of invasive fungal diseases as well as fungal-free survival with, of course, a much lower rate of antifungal use. So 
Um, this study looking at more of our long-term neutropenic patients, right? Everyone receiving fluconazole prophylaxis. Uh, this was a really, really fantastic study uh, focusing in on those um, immunosuppressed uh, patient populations and really showing that uh, our current guideline recommendations, right, weighting that empiric fever-driven arm, um, there were no difference in outcomes. And the antifungal use was almost a third, right, 27% versus 63%. Um, so really, really well done study from our European colleagues. And I know something that um, those who work in the in, with immunosuppressed patients and the immunosuppressed ICU probably very, very happy to see. Uh, now, let's kind of stay in this same world here, and um, let's tackle a, a very unique article, but hitting on something that is um, in the same breadth, um, kind of thinking about infectious diseases um, and risks of those popping up. Yeah, so my first article is actually going to be different from basically any other ones I'll be talking about. It's part of the New England Journal of Medicine's Clinical Decision article series, looking at oral vancomycin as secondary prophylaxis for the prevention of recurrent fetus infection. As a disclaimer, uh, the article does have a small subheading highlighting the fact that these are experts in the field answering a complex question with no completely correct answer. So, the case was of a 72-year-old woman with a history of spinal cord injury and resulting quadriplegia and neurogenic bladder for which she does intermittent catheterization at home. She presented to the ED with fevers, abdominal pain, and increased urinary frequency and has a history of hospitalizations and IV antibiotic therapy due to UTIs with a recent hospitalization that included non-severe fetus infection treated with fidaxomycin. She's currently hemodynamically stable with fever and leukocytosis and a urinary analysis consistent with infection. Her culture history does not show any resistant organisms in the past. And so the provider decides to start IV ceftriaxone for her UTI and then must decide whether or not to start prophylactic oral vancomycin to reduce her risk of recurrent infection. So option one was for recommending oral vancomycin prophylaxis. The clinical reasoning for option one starts with highlighting the recommendation made by the American College of Gastroenterology to utilize oral vancomycin prophylactically in patients with a history of fetus during subsequent antibiotic courses and who are at high risk of recurrence, which this patient will qualify. Now, one of the studies the guidelines utilized to make this conditional recommendation evaluated 557 patients who had received systemic antibiotics within 30 days of a diagnosis with a primary or recurrent fetus infection. The study found that oral vancomycin was effective at preventing another fetus infection in patients with a recurrent infection. The number needed to treat of that study was seven. And in a, meta, a meta-analysis of nine studies also found similar results to that. While there is variation in dosing and primary versus recurrent infections between the studies and the patient in the case, the author emphasized the additional risk factors of the patient and her likelihood of continued need for hospital care and systemic antibiotics. So therefore, she may may. The, making the benefits of preventing a recurrent fetus infection outweigh the risks of the prophylactic therapy. 
Option two then went into the option of not recommending oral vancomycin prophylaxis. So the case against oral vancomycin prophylaxis starts with discussing the 2017 IDSA SHEA guidelines, which provide no definitive recommendation for the use of oral vancomycin as secondary prophylaxis because of the paucity of evidence. The authors discuss how oral vancomycin is highly disruptive to the gut microbiome and can even negatively impact firmicutes, which are thought to play a role in the prevention of C. diff infections. Additionally, the authors state that there are no robust RCTs to support this practice and that studies lack appropriate follow-up period after the discontinuation of oral vancomycin to assess patients during that critical time frame when they would be at increased uh, risk for C. diff infection. When considering the profound disruption of the microbiome by oral vancomycin, the strong lack of, uh, the lack of strong evidence for the use of it and the patient's likely low risk of C. diff because of her previous therapy and potential microbiome recovery in the last three months, the authors recommended against the use of oral vancomycin for prophylaxis since the risk didn't outweigh the benefit. Now, I thought this was a great case as I've actually seen both routes taken at our institution. But while on my ID rotation, we are actually more often elected not to start prophylaxis unless the patient had a more extensive recurrent history due to some of similar arguments that were made in that option too. I'm kind of on the same page there. Um, you know, I love articles that are a little different, right? This tackled a, a topic without a completely correct answer. And I think that's more of the medicine we lived in. Um, I'm kind of on, I'm kind of on this page of, of, from an ID perspective, because I think it's very easy to see the direct complications from an opportunistic infection like C. diff and the argument for prophylaxis. But I think hopefully what we've learned over the last 10, 20, 30 years is that especially as it relates to antimicrobials and resistance, everything comes at a cost. So in some cases, the juice may be worth the squeeze, right? But I'm not sure we know what using this will do long-term, you know, to our gut flora and things that, um, you know, we'll talk about some of the bugs coming from other countries later in the episode. But I think uh, preserving what we can um, is always in our benefit. But I think this is a really cool study um, to highlight. Now, Let's shift to something that I think us in the critical care and emergency medicine world, as much as we love and appreciate ID and stewardship, let's get into some hemodynamics and talk about a um, polarizing topic um, and this study looking to solve the answer of um, uh, what to add when you're treating AFib with RVR. Yeah, so this one is actually uh, uh, written by a multitude of pharmacist author. So very exciting to read. Um, so medications considered for rate control in AFib or A-flutter include those non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers, beta blockers, amiodarone, or even digoxin. Non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers are effective at slowing AV nodal conduction and decreasing ventricular rate, yet it's really not without adverse drug events as 4.3% of patients can also experience hypotension due to a reduction in total peripheral resistance. 
So prior to this article, there's only been one study evaluating the efficacy of calcium with diltiazem and found no statistically significant difference in systolic blood pressure with similar rates of hypotension. Yet the study had a small sample size and used low doses of calcium, which warranted further evaluation of the use of calcium with diltiazem. So the objective of this study was to evaluate the effect of early IV calcium on systolic blood pressure when administered with IV diltiazem in ED patients with AFib or AFLUTTER and AVR. I'm sorry, in RBR. It was a multi-center retrospective cohort study that looked at a total of 254 adult patients admitted to the ED between January of 2013 and February of 2022. With documented AFib or AFLUTTER confirmed on an EKG, a heart rate of greater than 120, and a blood pressure of 90 to 140, and who had received IV diltiazem for rate control. Patients were excluded if they required um, electrocardioversion due to hemodynamic instability, prior treatment with another rate-controlling agent, or incomplete systolic blood pressure readings. The patients were then divided into two groups, diltiazem monotherapy and diltiazem with calcium. The baseline characteristics did differ slightly between groups. The diltiazem with calcium group had a lower BMI and serum calcium and albumin. The baseline blood pressure was also lower in the diltiazem with calcium group at 109 versus 123 millimeters mercury. Additionally, the diltiazem with calcium group received a median diltiazem bolus dose of 15 of 10 milligrams versus 15 milligrams in the diltiazem monotherapy group. The primary outcome for the study was a change in blood pressure at 60 minutes following the first IV diltiazem administration, which the authors found that the median change in blood pressure was similar between the groups and was not statistically significant. All of the secondary outcomes were similar between groups, including time to initial rate control, time to sustained rate control, and median reduction in heart rate 60 minutes after that diltiazem dose. Of note, Hypotension occurred more frequently in the diltiazem with calcium group, and bradycardia occurred more often in the diltiazem monotherapy group, though neither one of these were statistically significant. A subgroup analysis assessed the primary outcome in 45 patients within the diltiazem with calcium group that received that IV calcium prior to or at the exact same time as the initial IV diltiazem dose, and they didn't, in that subgroup, they found no difference in outcomes. The authors concluded that the use of calcium with diltiazem in the setting of AFib or AFLUTTER and RVR did not significantly impact clinical or safety outcomes compared to IV diltiazem monotherapy. So some of the strengths of this trial include it being the largest study to date evaluating the use of calcium with diltiazem since the majority of previous studies have evaluated it with verapamil. And in addition, this was a multi-center design at three community hospitals and two freestanding emergency departments, which does give it some applicability to like various emergency department settings that have variations in resources, staffing, or even practice habits. Yeah, this is a, a really well done study from, you know, you mentioned pharmacist colleagues down in, in Florida. Um Calcium's kind of having a tough run lately. A few studies in cardiac arrest. Now this. Now you mentioned some of the some of the inherent 
um, I guess you'd say confounders or biases in a sense. Like it makes sense. The group that got calcium is going to have a little bit lower blood pressure. They're going to use lower doses. Those are all things that you would see anecdotally, but of course can, can cause problems when you're thinking of a research perspective. Um, But I think this is such a polarizing topic using calcium in a setting like this, that, you know, those who are believers. I don't think this study is going to change their mind. And if you, if you weren't a believer, I don't think this study was going to change your mind either way. So I think it's going to be one of those where your feet are kind of in the sand, but it's a really well done study regardless. Um, so really, you know, kudos there. Um, really awesome job uh, highlighting um, an awesome study that's uh, very practical, right? Taking a question that we do in practice and seeing if it's actually, um, if the theory is true or not. Now, the next two studies I want to highlight, they're kind of linked. And... Um, the first study comes from chest. Uh, it's the recall of awareness during paralysis among ED patients undergoing tracheal intubation, right? So it's a 2023 study from Minneapolis, Minnesota, right? Um, highlighting one of my all time biggest fears. And it, it builds on the, the ED awareness study, the 2021 single center prospective study that found in almost 400 patients, there was about a two and a half, 2.6% rate of awareness with paralysis, so this um, research group in this busy uh, ED, uh, they did a observational study from July 2018 to January 2021, um, and they included all adult patients who received the neuromuscular blocker. Now, what sounds like in this ED that they have a, they have a continuous quality improvement database for all intubations, and there's an undergrad student 24-7 collecting data. So I know there are there are people listening that are salivating over um, this place having um, undergraduate you know data assistance you know helping twenty four seven minus holidays that's amazing um, the primary outcome awareness of paralysis in the ED and the secondary outcome was memory of the intubation so when these patients were extubated uh, the patients were interviewed. And um, if the patient said anything like they thought they remembered something or they they said that the event was similar to something that, you know, whether it's awareness or memories, they basically had these events like reviewed by these experts and validated, right, to make sure that, um, you know, they're receiving some some drugs that can affect memory and things. So I think they just you know, are, are validating, making sure it seemed possible. And they included about 886 patients and... 66 were possibly aware of their paralysis and 34 were possibly aware of their intubation procedure. It's so 79 unique patients and 21 had memories of both. Now I want to point this out. This is something that Haley Peters had mentioned when she came on for the RSI talk despite. So they found they did a logistic um, regression. They found that a decreased mental status prior to intubation was associated with a lower odds of awareness of paralysis. That makes sense. But, but this is the key. 26% of those who had awareness with paralysis, they had a RAS of negative four or negative five prior to intubation, right? So there's no real difference between sedatives or neuromuscular blockers or anything like that. So an important point, right? You don't know if people are, are what they're feeling or things with it just because they have a RAS of negative four or negative five. Now, an important point that the authors feature is that, that this is a continuous quality improvement project, right? So the physicians would receive feedback based on the patient interviews, and they knew when awareness with paralysis occurred. And 
the thought is that like you think in the beginning, if you knew that, right, that would skew your results, but it really didn't. It wasn't until the very end where those cases really dropped off. So, um, I think, you know, the authors highlight, and I think it proves a point of like, you know, there may be something more going on here, right? Um, whether than just thinking about some of the PK things or just using rocuronium. Um, and then, of course, the inclusion of these events were subjective. Um, and then the, the biggest thing, right, all the pharmacists listening are like, I need to hear the data and the agents, the dose, all those things. And it would have been nice to see some of that. It seemed like the, the undergrads collected some of that. I'm not sure. Um, that seems like a, a pretty big wish list. Um, but the other thing, if you want to be... If you want to be educated or sad, right, one of the two, uh, the supplementary appendix goes into detail on what each patient said about, like, an awareness or memory event. It's got, like, quotes and things, so it could be eye-opening. There were a couple of things that are sad to let you uh, choose um, whether to look into that or not, but a really cool, um, well-designed study. I don't know if cool is the right word, uh, but something that highlights, right, that this is a big deal. It's something that we really need to be concerned about, and maybe it's not just the agent. Because when they did the logistic analysis, right, they controlled for that stuff, and they didn't find your eight, your neuromuscular blocker or your type of uh, sedative being an independent risk factor. Um, and then the the study that's linked to this is the 2022 update to the infamous 2011 RSI for PharmD paper. So um, this is the rapid sequence intubation and the role of the emergency medicine pharmacist, the 2022 update published in AJHP. Um, it features pharmacists from uh, Olaf in Kansas City, um, in Kansas and Missouri, and it builds on the 2011 paper. It doesn't just repeat everything or regurge, like sometimes you'll see in, in review papers that get redone. Um, and it also references specific things like, yep, this is still accurate, or yep, go here for this info. Um, but it focuses on evaluating recent literature on RSI indications, contraindications, um, dosing, medications, adverse effects, and then some of the post-intubation management, right? So some of the things they talk about, they highlight lots of conflicting literature um, within the RSI world, right? First, Atomidate, where it talks about the discussion on the increased risk of Atomidate, uh, the increased risk of uh, mortality with Atomidate in septic shock, and kind of the the two sides of that coin, as well as management of Atomidate-induced myoclonus. Um, Propofol kind of uh, highlights the uh, retrospective study finding a, a much higher odd of post-intubation hypotension, but yet in a, in a much larger multicenter study, it wasn't necessarily duplicated. Um, but the, the authors note that, hey, you're, uh, these patients that they looked at are trauma patients. So does this apply to medical, uh, surgical, what have you, right? Uh, unclear. Um, and then the last one was kind of ketamine, right? And it, it highlights the fact that um, when catecholamine depletion is present and you're using catecholamines, right? So for example, sepsis, myocardial depression can occur and it causes that hypotension. But if you don't have that depletion, you actually can get that catecholamine reuptake and that causes the transient hypertension. Um, and I, I think we knew that it had different, it had different mechanisms, but I think it, it broken down just like that was um, really well said and easy to understand. Um, and then it, you know, debunked the avoiding ketamine with the high ICP myth. And then um, even a step further, it literally, uh, there's a, there's a whole paragraph, like half a page walking us through making clarifying a verbal ketofall order, which is just uh, a med safety masterclass. Um, it's something that if you're in the ER, it's a, a great read and something that we routinely do. Um, and then neuromuscular blockers, right? The, the quote is, uh, 
a, a healthy, if not a spirited debate over Rocky Rhodium versus succinylcholine. And they, they mentioned, right, that the, the, the 2014 Cochrane Review shows that succinylcholine was superior, but yet, you know, research continues to contradict each other despite that, right? Everyone kind of has their favorite. Um, the best argument that I actually have seen for rock that doesn't involve adverse effects is in this article, and it discusses a safer, safer apneic period. So highlighting the fact that your O2 sats drop quicker with succinylcholine post-administration compared to rock uranium. Um, and then a very practical discussion on the use of, of Sugamidex in the ED. Um, and then similar, right, to these very Literature Review Series episodes, uh, we, they end with a section on the role of the emergency medicine pharmacist. So I won't ruin it. It's so good. Go download, read, essential read. Um, put this as part two. Everyone needs to uh, take a peek um, and download this. Uh, kudos to Jeremy Hampton and the authors that, that he's involved with because this is just a, a really, really well done uh, study and update on the review. Okay, Rhea, come back and close us out um, looking at what else? We got to do a little bit of an ischemic stroke on the literature review series, so take it away. Yeah, so definitely last but not least, um, so the current 2019 American Heart and American Stroke Association guidelines for the early management of acute ischemic stroke recommend thrombolysis and or thrombectomy as an effective strategy for select acute ischemic stroke patients to achieve re- reperfusion. However, these strategies are still unable to achieve success in 100% of patients. So our Gatraban, a direct thrombin inhibitor, has had some evidence on its use in combination with Alteplase for improving and sustaining arterial recanalization, particularly in Asian countries. The 2017 ARTS-2 randomized multicenter study found a 9% improvement in their primary outcome in favor of our Gatraban plus Alteplase. However, most of these studies have had small sample sizes, which has led to the ARAIS trial, or A-R-A-I-S. The Argatraban Plus recombinant tissue type plasminogen activator for AIS, or which is the ARES study, was a Chinese multi-center open-label blinded randomized trial to assess the efficacy of Argatraban Plus Alteplase for acute ischemic stroke. Patients were included if they had an acute ischemic stroke defined as an NIHS score of greater than six and were within four and a half hours of symptom onset. Key exclusion criteria included pre-existing disabilities, which was defined as a modified Rankin score of greater than two, history of an intracerebral hemorrhage, GI or urinary tract bleeding in the last 30 days, and a need for concomitant use of anticoagulants other than argatraban. Both groups received IV alteplase at 0.9 mg per kg with a max of 90, 10% as the bolus over a minute, followed by the remaining over an hour. And patients in the Argatraban plus Alteplase group also got the 100 micrograms per kilogram bolus over three to five minutes within one hour of the Alteplase bolus, followed by an Argatraban infusion of one mic per kg per minute for 48 hours. And then the rates were adjusted to achieve an APTT of 1.7 times the baseline, which as a quick reminder for those who may not use Argatraban as often, that dose is similar to the dose used in the treatment of it. 
So a total of 760 patients were included in the full analysis and 692 in the per-protocol analysis. Baseline characteristics were pretty well balanced between the groups in both the full and the per-protocol analysis. Of note, about 20% of patients in both groups did have a large vessel occlusion or an LVO, with the majority having undetermined as a presumed stroke cause. The median NIHS score at randomization was 9 and 8 in the Argetriban plus Altaplace group and Altaplace group, respectively. Finally, about 80% of the patients had a uh, modified Rankin score of 0 at randomization, with only about 1% having a score of 2, which corresponds to mild disability. So the primary endpoint was excellent functional outcome at 90 days, which is defined as a MRS of 0 to 1. And as a quick review, the modified Rankin scale is a six-point disability scale with lower numbers, meaning less disability, so zero, no symptoms at all, versus six is death. Um, and the primary outcomes of that score of zero to one at 90 days was not statistically significant in either the full or per protocol analysis. 63.8% of the patients did achieve the primary outcome in the Argatriban plus Altaplace group versus 64.9 in the Altaplace group. There was also no significant difference in the secondary outcomes, which included favorable functional outcomes at 90 days, occurrence of early neurological improvement or deterioration at 48 hours, or occurrence of stroke or other vascular events at 90 days. Finally, the adverse events were also similar between the two groups, which included symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage, parenchymal hematoma, and even major systemic bleeding. The authors concluded that treatment with argatriban plus ultiplase did not result in a greater likelihood of excellent functional outcomes at 90 days or identify a signal of harm among patients who had an acute ischemic stroke. So some of the strengths and takeaways is that this was the largest study to date, and the authors did address a relevant clinical question regarding the benefit of Argastroban plus Altplace in non-LVO acute ischemic stroke patients and in patients with a lower NIHS score that then was previously seen in studies. Um, so this can maybe help shed some light on which patients this therapy might be best utilized in and which it might not. Yeah, it's, you know, the idea of using Argatriban, an anticoagulant, without a standard reversal agent post-TPA, I imagine is just a little scary. Um but this study didn't see um, any evidence of increased harm, right? Only 15 out of just under 800 patients had an ICH. So hard to know how to interpret this with it being a Chinese study. And I'm not sure how these results translate to a U.S. population. Um, but I think it's one of those, I feel like a lot of the the, the stroke pathway, right? You kind of have to get studied in these different settings. And so I think it's, you know, the Argatriban just working its way through the through the, the research pipeline a little bit. Um, interesting. I don't see myself uh, necessarily jumping out to use Argatriban right when our Alta place is done infusing. It, for the record, the, the people know we're Team TNK anyways on this pod, but um, regardless, um, interesting um, nonetheless. Okay, that was a fantastic 
uh, six pack of studies and featured articles from the month of February. Um, now our next section, uh, we're going to hit into the CV land, of course. Um, can't, uh, I mean, the, the cardiology studies just keep coming over and over. Um, so we're going to go into the don't break my heart section here. But I'm going to lead us with one study that stood out, and I'm going to kind of do the sandwich method and close us out. And then um, Rhea's going to come and really do the meat of the cardiac section. So without further ado, I think we need to get into Don't Go Breaking My Heart. Now, the first study is from the uh, Emergency Medicine Journal, and it's a... uh, Systematic review and a meta-analysis from our Australian colleagues that's looking to analyze the evidence behind the AHA and ESC guideline recommendations that specifically look at or recommend avoiding nitrates in patients with a right ventricular MI due to that risk of decreasing preload and further reducing cardiac output, thus causing hypotension. So they included five of these studies. It's kind of a secret flex in here because one of the studies only had an abstract. So they emailed the authors for a a non-peer reviewed print in one of these. So if you're looking at it and you're like, Hmm, I'm kind of wondering which, if we could pull this study, the answer is probably not from, from everything that I'm seeing. Um, and this review, right. Briefly, it just didn't show the same risk of, of adverse effects when nitrates are used in that specific right ventricular MI compared to MI in other locations. Now, um, of note, very low level of evidence. But the article talks about how the guidelines basically form the base of the recommendation on one study from 1989 where it has an unknown dose and route of the nitrate. So it's a really good review. Um, It even talks about the management of nitrate-induced hypotension, which has got some fun pearls in there. Um, Okay. Rhea, so come on back and stay in the systematic review meta-analysis world and talk to us a little bit about blood pressure in the critically ill. Yeah, so this next one looks at MAP targets and ICU patient outcomes. To give a little bit of background, there were two systematic reviews published in 2017 and 2015 that examined optimal blood pressure targets in critically ill patients but did not find a difference in mortality with higher MAP targets. However, these were conducted prior to three randomized control trials that were published in 2020, which did look at a various populations and included a variation of MAP targets. So this systematic review and meta-analysis aimed to determine whether targeting a higher MAP compared with a lower MAP in adults with shock resulted in differences in important patient outcomes. They included six randomized control trials with almost 4,000 patients meeting eligibility criteria. They included parallel group RCTs in adult patients diagnosed with shock and requiring vasoactive medications. Higher MAP of 75 to 85 was compared to a lower MAP of 65. The authors found that targeting a higher MAP versus that lower MAP resulted in no difference in mortality or the risk of renal replacement therapy, but the authors did, however, find that there was a reduced risk of undergoing renal replacement therapy in patients with chronic hypertension if they had that higher MAP target, so 75 to 85. 
to conclude, there was no difference in that mortality in with the higher map in patients who were being treated for shock, but there may be a decreased risk of needing renal replacement therapy in patients with that chronic hypertension, but future studies are still needed to validate these findings since there's been kind of a variety of um, outcomes and conclusions and everything prior. And you mentioned this, but I want to emphasize it, that it's all forms of shock, right? So I think most of us are familiar with the sepsis PAM study, sepsis PAM study specifically looking at sepsis, but this is traumatic, post-arrest, cardiogenic. Um, And so the thing that stood out to me is um, thinking about resource allocation. And if these patients are on vasopressors for one or two days longer, you're probably in the ICU for a little bit longer. And is that the best use of our beds if it's not necessarily changing outcomes in the majority of our patients, right? Unclear. H- hard to know, um, but that was kind of my thoughts as we're, um, I think, of the never-ending bed log, bed, um, bed log jam at my hospital. Um, now, kind of stay in the, when we're thinking of the cardiac world, but let's think of instead of in hospital, let's talk about some pre-hospital management here. Yeah, so this one was actually exciting for me to read since my husband is a paramedic, so we got to chat about it. Um, but it has pharmacist authors on it. So to give it to give a little background, ventricular fibrillation or VFib and pulseless ventricular tachycardia or, or pulseless VTAC are life-threatening arrhythmias that are initially treated with standard ACLS but can become considered refractory when they're unresponsive to at least three defibrillation attempts, the administration of at least three milligrams of epinephrine and 300 milligrams of amiodarone. So in this study, EMS and EMS system implemented a bundle that consisted of esmolol, vector change defibrillation, and dose cap epi at three milligrams for those patients who are considered refractory. The study compares clinical outcomes between patients with pre-hospital refractory VFib or pulseless VTAC who received that EMS bundle to patients who continue to receive standard ACLS interventions. Patients were included if they experienced a pre-hospital cardiac arrest with that refractory VFib or pulseless VTAC. Ultimately, 83 patients were included in the study, and there were some notable differences in baseline characteristics. So the pre-EMS bundle did receive fewer defibrillation attempts, they received more doses of epinephrine, and they had a shorter median duration of arrest. The primary outcome was sustained return of spontaneous circulation, or ROS, which was defined as lasting 20 minutes without the recurrence of cardiac arrest, and was significantly higher in the pre-EMS bundle group. So the pre-EMS bundle achieved ROSC at 58.3% versus 17% in the EMS bundle group. Secondary outcomes of incidence of any ROSC and survival to hospital arrival were also significantly higher in the pre-EMS bundle group. While the secondary outcomes of survival at hospital discharge and neurologically intact survival at discharge were actually not different between the groups. So patients who received the EMS bundle achieved sustained ROSC significantly less often and were less likely to have pulses at hospital arrival. But the incidence of that neurologically intact survival was low and still similar between the groups. 
So I thought this was a great retrospective study, which clearly defined intervention bundles, multi-center collaboration, and EMS involvement. And it also included outcomes that we like to see in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest literature that was reasonable, but additionally made a point to include those patient-centered outcomes of um, neurologic status at discharge. Okay, I'd be curious um, what your um, paramedic husband thinks about this, because my thought, I had two big thoughts of this, is um, I can't imagine the logistics of EMS doing this protocol in the field. Like, for example, when they talked about giving Esmolol, uh, it's a 40 milligram IV push bolus. Okay, that makes sense. But then you're doing 60 milligrams of Esmolol over 10 minutes. Most of the time, you're not having a smart pump. And I'm just, the. I would be very curious what these results looked like in a more controlled environment uh, like the ED, which is <laughs> hysterical saying that um, the emergency department is a more controlled environment. But I think in this case, it might be. What, what did, what, what, what was he saying about this? Yeah, so he found it very interesting, too, since it's a discussion within his department initially. Um, but like the points you made is he talked about they would have to calculate out the drip mm-hmm. for the as like do drip counts. Um, and that a lot of the times they're coding these patients in yes. the Bermuda Triangle <laughs> between the wall, the tub and the toilet. And so rolling them over to change the pads may not be as reasonable or they may not have as many hands. So I think your points are totally fair. And it's, it's pretty much exactly what he expressed. Yeah, that's the other thing that you've forgotten is like this is refractory ventricular arrhythmias, right? So you're doing this for a long time. And and the longer you're doing CPR, um, 30 seconds starts to feel like 30 minutes after a certain point, right? Mm-hmm. So you're doing, right? So these patients are all, they've been doing it for a while. So, I mean, it's a really, really awesome idea. And like in theory, right, when I was going to read this study, I would, I would have guessed the outcomes were going to be the exact opposite, right? But when you go into the logistics of it, I think that's where it's like, ooh, you know, great, great idea. But I'm wondering if we just need to change the setting just a little bit. Um, but that's a great pearl um, that that uh, all of us are on the same page, um, you know, both uh, your paramedic husband and, and us looking at that uh, article. So that's awesome. And uh, tell him uh, thank you so much for all the stuff that he does for us. Um and then close us out in one of a, what a unique paper, um, looking at trying to help us sort out which of our um, temporary mechanical circulatory support strategies have an impact on our platelets. Yeah, so um, a little bit of background. So thrombocytopenia is a common phenomenon of temporary mechanical circula- circulatory support. That can be the result of many things, but includes mechanical shear stress, which can cause platelet consumption. So this study by Dua and colleagues is actually the first to really look at the rates of thrombocytopenia between different mechanical circulatory support strategies. The authors aim to analyze the and quantitatively compare the degree and relative rate of platelet drop with various temporary mechanical circulatory support strategies, which included Impella, VV, and VA ECMO, intra-aortic balloon pumps, and biventricular assist devices, or BIVAD. 
This was a single center retrospective analysis, including patients that received any of the previously stated strategies and were excluded if they received platelet or blood transfusions while on mechanical circulatory support and had a positive SRA for HIT, among some other exclusion criteria. The percent platelet drop between these implementation and explantation periods were assessed using a repeated measure mixed effect and linear regression model. So a total of 77 patients were included from June of 2016 to August of 2021. There was a difference in age, total duration of support, and total bilirubin found among the groups at baseline with patients on VV ECMO having the greatest differences. There were no differences in other baseline characteristics such as platelet clowns, and then the indication for the support. The primary outcome was the degree of platelet drop from baseline to day seven post-implantation, and it was statistically significant in patients who were on VA and VV ECMO, impella, and an intraortic balloon pump. Patients on VA ECMO did have the highest percent drop at 69.6%, which was followed by patients on VV ECMO who had a drop of 40.9%. In Pella, an intra-aortic balloon pump had about a 20 to 30% drop. VA ECMO also had a faster rate of drop when it was compared to intra-aortic balloon pump, Impella, and a BIVAD. So the secondary outcome of degree of platelet recovery to baseline after day seven post-explantation was statistically significant in VV ECMO, but not in the other support strategies. Of note, all of the group's platelets were above their respective pre-implementation baselines on day seven post that explantation. So in conclusion, VA and VV ECMO in Pella and intraaortic balloon pump can induce a significant drop in platelet count with the degree of drop being higher in VA and VV ECMO. Yet platelet recovery was successful in all of the support strategies, suggesting reversibility of patients experiencing that acute thrombocytopenia. A really better understanding of acute thrombocytopenia in the support device population can help improve management even and even guide um, future studies. This is a great descriptive study from Boston, kind of helping us have a better understanding of the effect of those various strategies. And when you think about these patients, right, they're, they're on CRT, they're getting, they're getting beta-lactane, they're, all these things that could contribute to it. So having a little bit of info on how much some of these might contribute is really great. So hopefully more to come on this topic. Um, this is a great one to, to tuck away as a reference, especially if you um, interact with these patients who are receiving temporary mechanical circulatory support. Uh, Rhea, what an awesome, awesome three studies to highlight. One last one that I just want to uh, poke, poke a, a little bit of a um, discussion about is the uh, a study that looks at uh, angiotensin II post-CT surgery at the VA. Um, now, there's only been one real study uh, that was published by friend of the pod, Patrick V. Ruszewski, looking at the use of angiotensin II in cardiac surgery. And so um, this retrospective review with a pharmacist lead author um, looked at the response to angiotensin II, and they defined that as an increase in MAP accompanied by a decrease in your other vasopressor use, which I like, right? Because 
Um, you want to not only achieve your map goal, but hopefully come off of your other pressers. So a good point there. They had to be, you know, they have restrictions for the inch too. So they had to be on at least 0.2 mics per kilo per minute of uh, norepinephrine equivalents. Um, they had 19 patients included and then seven received ANG2. Now, there were striking results. Um, the group that got ANG2, they were on 0.5 mics per kilo per minute baseline versus 0.3 in the comparator group. And what they found at three hours was a improvement in their blood pressure, whereas the, the non-ANG2 group actually got worse. Um, and then it continued... Um, as the stay got went along. So obviously not the highest quality data, but adds a little bit suggesting that there, there might be a role for angiotensin II in our post-CT surgery kind of vasoplegic or cardiogenic shock population. Um, so that was, that was our cardiovascular section. I don't think either of our hearts is broken, but now let's quickly go into the neuro section here and let's kind of get uh, lost in our mind for a second. Um, and there are two articles that I want to highlight here in the neuro section themselves. So the first is the effect of nicotine on headaches in subarachnoid hemorrhage, right? So two things for this. So smoking is a risk factor for subarachnoid hemorrhage and nicotine withdrawal and subarachnoid hemorrhages can both cause headaches, right? And if you think about those aneurysmal subarachs, right, it's the, described as the worst headache of their life, right? So that plus nicotine withdrawal, think about that. Um, but nicotine treatment is frequently held due to concern for vasospasms. So uh, this is a single-center retrospective French neuro ICU study uh, with a primary outcome basically looking at headache control. And they matched 102 patients, 51 in each group, and they compared those who got nicotine replacement therapy and specifically those 21-milligram transdermal patches uh, versus those who did not. Similar demographics, similar outcomes, um, and they found there was no difference in headache control, but there was also no difference in good outcomes or delayed cerebral ischemia. So... Single center retrospective study, but um, maybe some evidence that the idea of giving that nicotine might not help our headache as much as we thought, but it also might not hurt our outcomes as much as we may think as well. So uh, things to keep in mind, um, unfortunately, not necessarily a positive one. There's nothing worse than when you have a, an untreated headache. It's just, I can only imagine uh, for our subarach patients. So hopefully there'll be some some relief for them in the future. Um, and the last, the other study I wanted to highlight um, is is a discussion on fentanyl-induced rigid chest syndrome. Um, now, when I think of this, I think of it being associated with IV boluses, and specifically higher-dose IV boluses. Um, and some of our pharmacist colleagues, the lead author, right here in Indianapolis with me, I published in the Journal of Intensive Care Medicine, and it's one of the first studies to describe this fentanyl-induced rigid chest syndrome in the setting of continuous analgesia use. So, in the setting of fentanyl infusions. So this was like a retrospective dual site study that really just looked to identify patient characteristics and treatment strategies for fentanyl-induced rigid chest syndrome. So over a five-year period, they had 42 patients. Remember, this is retrospective as well. Um, and of note, what a majority of these patients had, they had documentation of either thoracic or abdominal kind of rigidity, and they had ventilator noncompliance. And the scary thing is in the details about these fentanyl administration in these patients because the median rate was 100 mics an hour and the median duration 
was 34 hours. So uh, much lower and much shorter of a duration than I would have expected. So something to consider in those patients who are bucking the vent, maybe they're naive to some of these things. Um, when they discuss, the, the authors discuss uh, treatment, um, naloxone, plus or minus uh, neuromuscular blockers and other anxiolytics to help there. So um, a eye-opening, but a really great um, addition to the literature talking about a very specific kind of adverse effect in the world of fentanyl. So kudos there. So Rhea, let's kind of close us out. It was a awesome, awesome month for, for all of our pharmacists out here. So um, we actually, both of us are going to highlight three studies. So why don't you kind of uh, take it away in a study that uh, stays a little bit in the neural world for us? Yeah, so this time I'll be talking about levetiracetam-associated behavioral adverse events in the neurocritical care population. So levetiracetam is a common anti-seizure medication used in the neurocritical care world for the treatment of seizures, status epilepticus, and even prophylaxis in certain populations. Yet there have been some reports of patients developing behavioral adverse events which is typically defined as like agitation or restlessness, delirium or anxiety that occurs after the initiation of levetiracetam. So the purpose of this study was to identify the incidence of levetiracetam-associated behavioral adverse events in specifically that neurocritical care patient. This was a single-center retrospective cohort analysis looking at ICU patients with neurologic injuries receiving levetiracetam from November 2014 through October 2018. Authors defined behavioral adverse events as documentation of agitation or restlessness, delirium or anxiety, the recipient of antipsychotics, being CAM ICU positive, or having physical restraints placed. Ultimately, a total of 965 patients were included in the final analysis, and the most common injury type was a traumatic brain injury, followed by an intracranial hemorrhage and subarachnoid hemorrhage, with cerebral infarction being the least common. 445 patients, or 46% of the study cohort, were identified as having a levetiracetam-associated behavioral adverse event. Of this cohort, 60% of them had documented agitation or restlessness, delirium, or anxiety. And of these three, agitation and restlessness was the most common. So about a quarter of them also had a positive CAM ICU score, with the majority also having documented agitation, restlessness, and anxiety. In addition, 42% of the patients received antipsychotics concurrently with levetiracetam. And the first behavioral adverse event occurred at about 1.3 days post-levitrophidem initiation. So the authors found that patients with a traumatic brain injury had the highest incidence of these behavioral adverse events at 52.4% when compared to other injury types. So ultimately, this is important because the authors found that patients who experienced these behavioral events had significantly longer hospital length of stay at 15 versus 7 days and longer ICU length of stay at 8 versus 3 days. Ultimately, the authors concluded that nearly nearly half of the population experienced hyperactive behavioral events after the initiation of levetiracetam 
and recommended monitoring for the development of these events since they can lead to those longer ICU and hospital length of stays. Now, at my institution, we still lean toward uh, using levotracidin for the majority of patients, but I do think it would be interesting to know our rates of behavioral adverse events and even develop more awareness around the potential contribution of levotracidin to these hyperactive um, behavioral events. Yeah, hard to say with this population if if the medication exclusively has this high of a rate, right? This is a real-world analysis, so hard to know. Is it delirium? Is it the, the head injury? Is it the levotiracetam? But, you know, just like the authors in the study say, it's a high rate regardless. And I think with the increased use of levotiracetam for seizure prophylaxis, I think it's important information for us to have. And I think uh, one important sentence, so the, the authors did a multiple regression analysis um, looking and evaluating for risk factors. And the two things they found that increased your risk to have a behavioral adverse event was uh, if you were oversedated, if your ass was less than or equal to negative three, or if you received a benzo, not crazy benzo doses either. So um, something to keep in mind, shout out to Joanna Stallings, but uh, always keeping in mind, no matter what our patient population is, keeping those same kind of um, PAD um, and ABCDF bundle uh, principles high at our forefront. That's a perfect lead-in. We're talking about the ABCDF bundle. Uh, let's talk about dexmedetomidine and our dosing of it um, in a specific uh, patient population. Yeah, so this one will be standard versus high-dose dexmedetomidine in um, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, or ECMO. So as a little background, the extracorporeal life support organization, or ELSO, recommends full sedation for 12 to 24 hours after cannulation, cannulation, followed by minimalizing sedation with a goal of preventing the patient from removing those cannulas. A survey of almost 400 ECMO centers found that despite varying sedation practices, dexmedetomidine was one of the most commonly used agents when light sedation was the target. So the purpose of this study was to compare safety and efficacy of standard dose, which is defined as less than 1.5 mics per kg per hour, versus high dose, which is defined as greater than 1.5 mics per kg per hour, of dexmedetomidine in ECMO patients. This was a single center retrospective analysis, including adult patients on ECMO who received either that standard or high dose dexmedetomidine with a maximum dose of 3 mics per kg per hour. Patients were excluded if they had received dexmedetomidine prior to that ECMO cannulation. A total of 105 patients were included with 21 in the high-dose group, and patients receiving high-dose dexmedetomidine had a lower actual body weight. ARDS was by far their primary indication for ECMO, and dexmedetomidine was started about five hours sooner post-cannulation than the standard dose group. In both of those groups, VV ECMO was the most common modality. There were no significant differences in the safety outcomes of new onset bradycardia or hypotension. Since this was a retrospective study, efficacy was compared by the addition of concomitant sedation and analgesic agents. And while there was no difference seen in the addition of any analgesic or total fentanyl equivalents per day, there were higher rates of continuous infusion ketamine and benzodiazepines in that high-dose group. 
the authors concluded that rates of dexmedetomidine higher than that 1.5 were commonly used with similar rates of adverse events and needs for concomitant propofol and analgesic agents. I thought the authors evaluated clinically relevant outcomes and concerns for the use of high-dose dexmedetomidine in a new population that, until this point, really had mostly data extrapolated from non-ECMO patients. Uh, in addition, the study dealt with issues that are familiar to the ICU, such as like dosing at the discretion of the provider and patients requiring higher doses of dexmedetomidine were also the ones who may have been sicker since it, they had a shorter time to that cannulation and more ketamine and benzodiazepine use. Well, and I, uh, the, the um, authors from uh, West Virginia here, they, they kind of raised the question, is there no difference or is it actually getting sequestered, right? And there's no difference because the higher group is getting a little higher. And um, when you first look at the study, I think in my mind, I thought the doses were going to be much, you know, the median daily dose was 1.8 um, mics per kilo per hour in the higher group. So it's not like they were doing 2.2, 2.3, you know, crazy high doses like that. Um uh, and then the mean daily dose, right, in that high group was 1.4 mics per kilo per hour. So still, you know, within the standard dosing scheme. So, you know, questions remain, um, but uh, a great study at one of our um, highest risk populations, right, and making sure that they are um, adequately sedated and things is a really important um, thing for us. Uh, now let's let's stay in the dosing world here, um, Rhea, and talk about, uh, talk about a unique uh, international study. Yeah, so this next article looks at the effectiveness of four-hour versus half-hour infusion of high-dose ampicillin sulbactam in critically ill patients with sepsis or septic shock. And as a quick reminder, beta-lactams such as ampicillin sulbactam are time over MIC dependent, meaning that the longer the antibiotic concentration remains over the minimum inhibitory concentration or the MIC of the bacteria, the better the bacterial killing there is. Studies have examined extended versus intermittent infusions and a number of other beta-lactams, such as cefepime, meropenem, and piperacil and tazobactam. Therefore, the study of this, the purpose of this study was to determine whether critically ill patients admitted to the ICU with sepsis and septic shock may benefit from extended infusion, high-dose ampicillin sulbactam compared with those receiving intermittent infusions. This was a randomized assessor-blinded clinical trial conducted in the ICUs of two hospitals in Iran from August 2019 through August of 2021. Patients were included if they were being treated with high-dose ampicillin sulbactam and diagnosed with sepsis or septic shock within 24 hours. Participants received 9 grams of ampicillin sulbactam every 8 hours, which, as a quick reminder, the uh, high-dose ampicillin Sulbactam is used to treat acinetobacter as compared to bloodstream infection dosing, which is typically three grams every six hours. The extended infusion group received the dose over four hours, and the intermittent group received it over 30 minutes. And just of note, blinding did occur by not having the investigators work in the ICUs that were recruited. A total of 136 patients were included and equally distributed between the extended and the intermittent group. 
Baseline characteristics were also similar, similar between the groups, except for higher rates of bloodstream infections in that extended interval group. Primary outcome of clinical cure, which is defined as resolution of all signs and symptoms of infection, was significantly higher in the extended infusion group, while ICU and hospital length of stay did not differ between the two groups. Additionally, ICU mortality was lower in that extended group at 33.8% versus 17.6%, as was hospital mortality at 36.8% versus 20%. The authors concluded that extended infusion high-dose ampicillin sulbactam had higher clinical cure and lower ICU and hospital mortality, but these results still need to be confirmed by additional trials. So the authors really added to medical literature regarding the use of extended infusions of beta-lactams in the critically ill population and evaluated even a wide array of infections and sources, which does provide future research with a foundation for further study. Over 50% of patients in each group had an acinetobacter infection, which is a terrifying look into our future. Um, and that's why um, this study adds the literature so much, right? Looking at our, our treatments for um, some of these nasty bugs. Um, the other um, kind of big note, right? They found lower procalcitonin values, right? As the therapy went on. So I'm not sure what to make of that. I don't think someone has an acinetobacter bloodstream infection. I'm going to argue to stop early because their procal is getting better. Um, but I think finding what the lab biomarkers and things do in these types of settings um, is helpful for, for future research and studies. So um, a very unique, uh, awesome study from some of our uh, Iranian colleagues, which is really cool. Um, so Ria, I want to highlight a couple more of our, of our uh, pharmacist articles here. What an awesome month in February. Um, the first is an AJHP review article that with a who's who of pharmacists, uh, friends of the pod. They're the first and last author sandwich with uh, Brooke Barlow and, and Mojda Hevner, but lots of, of familiar names on the full author list. Um, the article considerations with electrolytes in targeted temperature management. So they go into detail on what you'd expect to see with various electrolytes, um, you know, depending on where they are in the TTM cycle, cooling versus warming. Uh, for the visual learners, there's a beautiful visual describing what the electrolytes are doing um, during different phases of TTM. So uh, they even spoil us by including some patient cases. Uh, they give examples of appropriate management as it relates to electrolytes. Um, it's something to tuck away and kind of save on your zip drive for a rainy day uh, after you read it, um, of course. Now, uh, we're staying in HHP. I mean, this is a letter from uh, colleagues in uh, Rochester, Minnesota that um, discuss the challenges with actually changing medical terminology. So the letter, putting words into action, adopting vancomycin infusion reaction terminology. And they're focusing specifically on removing the use of the slur red man syndrome and instead using the phrase vancomycin infusion reaction. So the authors take you behind the scenes of what they did to make this change in their institution so that you can possibly do the same. So they created a multidisciplinary task force. They created, implemented, and then evaluated those interventions. So they use staff communication, EHR modules, and then removal of that terminology from the EHR and electronic order sets. And then, right, they did a step further and they wanted to see what was actually happening. So they reviewed the allergies that were being entered 
and they found that the incorrect terminology was being used almost 30% pre-intervention to just over 6% post-intervention. To those who may not, like, think this is a big deal, like, why is this getting highlighted? Like, I truly couldn't disagree more. Um, If we can't make a change to just simple terminology that I think most of us can agree um, is wrong and needs to be changed. Like how are we going to make real changes to create that more inclusive healthcare environment? So um, a a fantastic publication from pharmacists uh, really across Minnesota. Um, And then the last article highlights something that the friends of the pod know, right? If, if the patient can't get the medicine, it makes no difference. So this is a paper from our colleagues across the river uh, in Cincinnati looking at the effect of access to rifaximin upon discharge and how that influenced patient outcomes. So single center case control study from January 2016 through August 2020 published in the Annals of Pharmacotherapy. And it basically compared the effect of having rifaximin upon discharge or not. They have like a meds to bed uh, uh initiative it sounds like and um if basically if you had it on discharge you were able to get rifaximin and if you weren't you were not able to and basically the authors described that it was either financial or prior auth issues typically holding those things up um 176 patients included 74 of which did not have rifaximin on discharge it was matched right case control so based on characteristics were the same um and the primary outcome was a composite percent of patients experiencing either readmission or acute office visits for hepatic encephalopathy within the next 12 months. And um, not getting rifaximin was associated with double the rate of the composite uh, endpoint, both at 12 months and six months, both discharge. And when they break it down and separate the components, it looks like the, the biggest reason is the the readmission, like the acute hospitalization, um, which is something, we, you know, obviously we're always working to to avoid. And I think this article stresses the importance of transitions of care, right? Over half the patients were able to get rifaximin. They were able to do so with a $0 copay. So um, that happens with the help of a fantastic pharmacist and social worker um, and a really good multidisciplinary team. Um, they also go in to note um, that, of course, Rifaximin is one of seven drugs noted to experience unsubstantiated price hikes recently. So even more reason to collaborate, make sure patients can get this. And if not, you know, figure out what resources you need to do to try to make that happen. Because clearly, right, uh, single center retrospective, but it shows the difference that getting that guideline therapy can make. Um, It's kind of crazy that this still needs a PA, but, you know, that's another discussion for another day. Um, let's close this out here, right? We just finished the, the front of the fridge, hitting all those awesome pharmacist topics and articles from the month of February. I want to hide two kind of like random articles and close us out here. I mean, the first is in critical care medicine and it's, um, an article that includes reflections on the importance of the critical care medicine journal from critical care pioneers, right? So who's who from a critical care perspective. And of course the pharmacist legend, um, Indianapolis's own Judy Jacoby is featured and she highlights the increased role pharmacists have had and how much work she and other pharmacists did to put us in the place that we are now. Obviously, all of us listening and are in this role are so forever grateful for you all. Um, and there's a really funny anecdote of her describing tr- literally photocopying articles and having like stacks of printed papers in her office. So that's a, it's a funny visual of certainly a different time. Um, and then the last one, 
It's always kind of a random fun one. It's a Korean retrospective study that um, is looking at the use of metformin in the 24 hours prior to an in-hospital cardiac arrest. And what they found was that uh, metformin use was uh, associated with an increase in survival to discharge with a good neurologic outcome. How much better, you may ask? Oh, the odds ratio is over five. So I tell this um, as more of a little bit of a random and, and good fun one because I think Metformin is hearing us talk about these SGLT2 inhibitor articles. And it's like, hey, don't forget about me. Metformin is still the first drug that we studied and everything we're still trying to put in water. And we're still getting cool facts like this of Metformin being associated with an odds ratio of over five that in an in-hospital cardiac arrest, you'd survive to discharge with a good neurologic outcome. So um, a really funny uh, way to end our awesome discussion for February. Uh, Rhea, thank you so much for highlighting uh, all the awesome work that, that's been published and really helping uh, all the friends of the pod stay up to date um, on the literature that's being published. Um, reminder, right, for all those who want to reach out to Rhea, tell her what an awesome job she did. Um, her Twitter handle is her name. I always love when that happens, at Rhea Saltow. Um, so, Rhea, thanks so much again. I, I greatly appreciate your uh, time, effort, and energy. Thank you for letting me come on. I've always been a fan, so <laughs> this was awesome. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for your support. You're the best. Thanks again to Rhea Saltow. Um, please reach out to her. Let her know what an awesome job she did at Rhea, R-H-E-A, Saltau, S-O-L-T-A-U. Um, reach out to me as well, uh, Twitter or Instagram at pharmacy to dose, T-O to dose, or via email, pharmacy to dose at gmail.com. The reference list with the articles we discussed today, articles that we've, that we discussed within the articles today, much more featured in the podcast episode description as well as at pharmacytodose.com, the website. And until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast.